Welcome to Embargoed, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade. For trade nerds and normal, normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today is my friend, colleague, and co-host, Roland Stein of the Blomstein Law Firm in Berlin. Roland, welcome to the podcast. Tim, it's a great pleasure being here. Thank you. Good. Good to have you. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, first, before we get started on German export controls and, and talking about the year in German export controls 2022, because I think it might have been the biggest year in the history of German export controls and sanctions. Why don't you tell us first a little bit about your law, law firm Blomstein and, and your practice there? Okay, so okay, starting with the with the law firm. Um, so we are a, a independent a boutique a law firm. It's a spin-off from uh, uh, Freshfields, where I and the other founding partners used to work for a, a number of years. But already in 2016, so seems to be ages ago, uh, we set up our own law firm and. We're very focused on international trade, um, public procurement law, and antitrust. So really, the regulation of competition uh, and of trade on uh, an international level. And I think we're now around 20 lawyers and focusing uh, on these areas. Um, if you look, I think of greater interest today is the international trade uh, sector. Um, and it's certainly true that we've had, I guess, the, 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 the most um, uh, spectacular year, and not only positively, but certainly most of that, if we think of the origin, that's certainly a horrible uh, origin uh, of all these, you know, all these uh, disputes and conflicts that we have that led to these, uh, to these um, legal activities uh, throughout the world, uh, including in, in Europe, and in Germany. Um, and if we look at, I think all trade areas have been affected uh, by the war in Ukraine, but also by, you know, disputes with China um, and, you know, disruptions in, in Iran, uh, in Myanmar, wherever. Um, and all these, um, these conflicts have, have had an impact uh, on the legislation in Europe uh, and in Germany. Um, if you look at, at the Russia sanctions alone, um, uh, you know, I think the, the starting point where was annexation of Crimea in 2014. Um, and there we had a regulation consisting of six pages. <laughs> and now we have, you know, more than 60 pages, you know, including more than 30 annexes. Um, uh, of the of the Russia sanctions, and, and then in addition to that, we still have the financial sanctions. Um, on the financial sanctions, it was exploded from you know as I think less than a hundred uh, people sanctioned to more than one thousand, so really more than ten, 10 wow. times the amount of people uh, sanctioned. I think if you look at the 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 industry in Russia, it's certainly easier to find sectors which have not been targeted, right? So we thought about that. We had a coffee here in the morning in the, in the, in the office. And I think it, probably it's fair to say that if you look at the imports from Russia, you can still import agricultural products uh, and certain raw materials. So nickel, palladium, copper, you know, stuff that really is only produced basically in Russia, right? Right. Um, 
And then on the export side, you have pharmaceutical products. You know, but even in these little areas, you also have encroachments and, and hamperings, you know, because you hardly find a bank to finance that. You have, you know, all sorts of prohibitions on brokering, on technical assistance. So I think it's really uh, basically the entire trade uh, in products, in goods, in, in services with Russia has been uh, hampered. And that's certainly to a country such as Germany, which is so much oriented into exporting stuff. <laughs> so that's really, it was a, a nightmare uh, to the industry and was certainly a challenge also here uh, on our side. Yeah, it's been a big year. And I think um, if I had to pick one country that has responded to the war in Ukraine in a way that was different than predicted, I would say Germany would be the country that I would pick. And and um, part of the reason, and, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about this, but just from the outside, the I think the expectation seemed to be that because Germany and Russia were such trading, such extensive trading partners, and because the sanctions that took place after Crimea, particularly with respect to Germany, seemed relatively minimal, and even the ones that were in place, um, you know, from the U.S. perspective anyway, Germany didn't seem inclined to go along with them. And I think that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was probably a good example of that. And then after the war began, uh, I mean, I think the German sanctions have changed more than any other country's sanctions, at least from the outside, it looks that way. I mean, and and I'll throw it over to you at this point, but I mean, why don't you provide us a little history of kind of who the regulators were? And at least as I understand it, in the last year, the German law has changed pretty dramatically in terms of how the, the statutory authority for sanctions and how sanctions work and export controls work within Germany itself. Yeah, I think if you allow me to, to go back a bit further. Um, so I think the tradi tradition of the German industry investing in Russia goes back way long time. So, you know, if you look at Siemens, uh, for example, you know, and was when it's still a time when the company wasn't that big. So the, the first big international contract that Mr. Siemens, I think himself was awarded, was building, a, you know, telegraphic uh, I think lines in Russia. Uh, and since wow. then, there was a long tradition of uh, German companies investing in Russia, in the energy market, in the energy field, uh, in the telecommunication sector, in the agricultural sector. So this was really a, a part of um, uh, the German export market. I think not always the, 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 the most important one, but certainly a important market. And what is also important to bear in mind that, you know, this market was still there during the Soviet times, right? So we had a system that I fear of saying that this was, uh, uh, was uh, I won't qualify it, right? With regard to today's Russia's political system, but at least <laughs> it, it was considered to be very bad from our Western experience, how the Soviet Union was run, but still uh, you had industries operating in Soviet Union and, and buying natural gas, coal, um, um, uh, and um, uh, oil from the Soviet Union. And so I think there, it's probably, if, if you look at it from that perspective, it's clear that um, Germany had an interest in continue buying natural gas from Russia, 
through Nord Stream 1 uh, and 2. Um, and so the politicians here, but also, you know, the mainstream uh, business um, uh, people always said, yeah, sure, we want to continue buying. And then there was this bang um, in the, which happened on 24 February uh, of last year. One could have thought, okay, the first bank should have been an extension of Crimea or the invasion uh, of Russia and Georgia, but these didn't really, um, I think this was still considered to be far away. And you always had, I won't say an understanding, but I think it wasn't, uh, it wasn't to be perceived as harsh as what happened then when uh, Russia invaded a European country for the first time since uh, the Second World War, we had such activities here in Europe. And I think this really was considered to be a, a massive change. And I think the way in which politicians uh, consider Russia changed, but also the way in which uh, business leaders consider Russia changed. So I think we've had a number of discussions uh, in which we told our clients, uh, so these are the rules. You need to do A, B, and C, uh, and you are precluded from doing D, E, F. Uh, and they said, okay, but I want to do more. I want to divest quicker. Uh, I, I, I want to stop selling altogether, even if I was still allowed to sell these products to Russia. A number of companies decided that they will not want it. Uh, they they, they they, they just felt that they are morally obliged to stop uh, trading with Russia. Um, I, and, just to, and just to jump in here, I mean, I've seen the same thing from the U.S. side. I mean, I've, I've represented, you know, as you know, I've represented German clients for years in the export and sanction space. And I think prior to, to February 2022, what I would get was that the whatever export controls or sanctions were in place were kind of a nuisance from the U.S. side, like tr complying with U.S. sanctions and U.S. export controls was a nuisance and something that they weren't really, was not a priority. Post-February 2022, I mean, we have clients now who want updates on U.S. sanctions, German clients who never seemed interested in those sanctions before, want updates on export controls, want to know kind of how do I go through compliance in a way that just hadn't happened prior to February 2022. So I'm, I'm even, it, it sounds like that's even more, um, there's, there's even more energy for that just on the German side, but even for German companies complying with US laws, it's just, I, I, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Yeah, and I think one interesting topic, um... A related topic, I think if you look this, you know, if we look away, you know, moving away from the, the companies back to the, uh, to the legislature, I think this is the first time that we've seen the EU acting more aggressively than the US regulator. So I think it, it used to be, and you remember that from past cases, and this was always very easy for us. So we asked the, our dear U.S. colleagues to tell us, you know, how are the rules in the U.S.? And then we simply told the, the client, you know, that's, these are the rules in the U.S. They prohibit like 80%. And then we told them these are the rules in the EU. So we only prohibit like 10%, right? Yep. Um, and I think now you have a situation in which all of a sudden the EU is much stricter uh, than, you know, I think in some areas the EU adopted the, the U.S. approach. For example, when you 
you now we do it as in the US that you add the participation of sanctioned persons and if the overall participation of a sanctioned person in another company is over 50%, then this other company is considered to be a sanctioned person as well. Right. So I think that this used to be the case in the US, but in, in the EU, it was always that you had to, you looked at that uh, separately. But now, so I think, you know, with regard to owner control, I think we basically follow the stricter standard that was being adopted in the US. But if you look at certain areas, I think now uh, the, the EU, uh, uh, you know, decided to, to be more aggressive than US, for example, with regard to the um, export of luxury products yep. um, or the export of certain industrial components um, that uh, are still uh, allowed from a US perspective, but are prohibited uh, from an EU uh, perspective. Yeah, the values are very different. I mean, from the US side, the value for a luxury good is usually over $1,000 per good. And I think the EU is 300 euros or something yeah. along those lines. And so it's a lot less in the EU, so that it catches a lot more goods. Yeah, and then and if you, in addition, take into account that you still have a lot of, you had a lot of road export to, to Russia, right? So which yep. made it easier. Um, uh, and, and I think these, um, they're just some examples of where I think the, e the EU realized that it needed to, to take a very strong stance here. Uh, and it, it's not afraid of taking that stance. And I think in all the, the changes that we've seen and just counted today in the morning, so we had 15 amendments to the Russia regulation, to the main Russia regulation, 833, and five corrections, so more than 20 legislative uh, steps. Uh, uh, starting with 23 February, um, and with all of them, the the rules always got harder. So I think there isn't one change here which made it easier to export to Russia. You know, sometimes they 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 deleted a a, a listing from one of the annexes, but it was clear that you know we had some uh, clients that are active in the pharma sector, so it was clear that these products are used exclusively uh, to, to heal people, right? And then you had instances where this one line was crossed out of the sanctions list. So we've had cases like this, but uh, from a, the systematic approach was always getting tougher and tougher and tougher, um, which makes it now more complex, right? I mean, we're discussing right. the 10th package. Right? Yeah, I, is that coming out in the next couple of weeks? That's what I've heard. Well, I don't know. <laughs> the, uh, it was supposed to come out uh, some weeks ago, uh, and then it was supposed to. Now it's the idea is to have it as a uh, present to uh, the twenty fourth of February, so the year of the uh, of the proper invasion. Um, wow! But we have the black box uh, of certain Eastern European member states, in particular Hungary, um, which are opposing some of these uh, of the potential areas and if you look what basically what you can still can do is there are still some banks uh, operating which are not sanctioned so alpha bank for example right they, they such a bank could be added to the list you have certain sectors such as the civil nuclear sector so rosatom that could be sanctioned um but there hungary and i think 
in that regard, understandably says, okay, but we're just commissioned them to build a nuclear plant in Hungary, right? But right. Are we expected to do that? And so I think, you know, you tell us we should stop buying coal, we should stop buying natural gas, and now <laughs> we'll have this nuclear plant, and now we're not allowed to, to continue building that. So I think is there, there are, some way? Is there some way to to grandfather that it, it, through a general license? I mean, the state, the OFAC does that from time to time, where there's a project that it doesn't want to interfere with, but basically wants to impose sanctions going forward. But yeah, I think we've, we've seen these cases. So, for example, in the crude oil sector. Uh huh. Um, so I don't know with when, uh, but I think it was in, in late summer. So crude oil. Um, uh, and some of the uh, oil products were added uh, to the sanctions list. Um, and there we have a multi-step approach. So first it was only, you know, if you had oil that came from pipelines, this was still allowed to be imported, which I think makes sense. If you look at the, you know, we have some landlocked countries, Bulgaria, for example, um, and they have their pipelines coming from Russia. So, you know, where should they buy their oil from if, if not from Russia, right? Right. Um, so I think the idea was first that you had the transports by sea, which were prohibited, but then you had grandfathering clauses, for example, for certain uh, activities uh, or for on-the-spot um, acquisitions uh, until I think it was February, uh, uh, December and uh, February of this year. But most of these uh, grandfathering clauses have elapsed now okay. with regard to crude oil. But you could certainly consider also having grandfathering clauses in, in this in the civil nuclear area. And I guess that would be a price that um, certainly, the, or not certainly, but I, I think the Commission would pay this price of allowing Hungary to con continue cooperating with Rusatom to have a tenth package. Yeah. But That'll you know interesting it, to see. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's pretty amazing that the EU has gotten through nine packages given that you, it, my understanding is you need all 30 member states to go along with it and getting unanimity like that has been quite impressive. Getting in and and it's really difficult. I mean, I think you have some uh, uh, countries such as, you know, Poland and the Baltic states which have a very clear um, a pro-Ukrainian um, position, and so they support all the um, uh, 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 sanctions. But then you have countries such as Hungary and Bulgaria, which have a immense, um, uh, not dependency, but they have very strong economic ties to Russia and, right. and bought a lot of their natural gas, uh, coal, and, and all these other and raw materials from Russia. And if you look at Germany, it's probably in a, in a better situation. Um, you know, it, it used to buy a lot of its natural gas from Russia, uh, but, you know, given the uh, economic um, the power, it was able to simply buy the natural gas from other sources, right? Right. But some of the Eastern European um, states simply don't have the economic resources to go on and buy everything at, at all costs. Right. Right. So I right. think it's it's really a uh, I think it's it's an impressive uh, political um, uh, achievement from the EU the Commission and the Council that they managed to pass on all these packages without huge discussion. Some of them took longer than expected, 
But at the end of the day, uh, we've seen really a substantial number of very aggressive uh, sanctions packages here. Yeah. Do you think it has anything to do with the U.S. approach here? I mean, and it may it may be that this would have happened organically anyway, but I've always thought that it helped that the U.S. basically said to its allies, we'll handle U.S. transactions and you're responsible for your own transactions in terms of sanctions. And so, you know, it, it, it which is completely contrary to the case of, say, Iran, where the U.S. said, you know, we're going to impose sanctions even on transactions that don't have anything to do with us. Even, you know, German transactions with Iran are going to be our business and we don't care what you think. Whereas with the Russia sanctions, at least after February 2022, the U.S. position has mostly been, certainly with respect to the EU, you you are responsible for for your sanctions. And so if they're going to be harsh, it's going to be because you make them harsh. And if they're going to be weak, it's going to be because you make them weak. Now, I do think that the U.S. might have changed its approach if the EU had not stepped up like it did. But the way that the EU has stepped up has been incredibly impressive. And I, I think it actually supports the notion that if you want stronger sanctions, multilateral sanctions are much more um, effective and much more um, and and much and much easier to get if you bring in a coalition and say everybody stays in its own lane as opposed to you know if you don't do this we're going to do this which has been the traditional U.S. approach in the past at least with respect to Iran. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and it fits well in this um, European approach of you know living in a rule-based, harmonized world. Um, I'm not saying that the EU is always always abides by the, by its own rules and standards, right? But I think the uh, the overall approach, and the, you know, that's the EU is a concept where we have individual countries moving together, right? So they say we want to have here a harmonized international uh, standard. So I think it's uh, it was always perceived to be uh, an issue having these uh, secondary sanctions uh, on Iran, but also on, on Cuba, for example. So it was yep. always perceived to be uh, to be an issue here in, in Europe, and it certainly helped. I think it it helped that there was a at least among the G7, you had some uh, understanding that we need sanctions, but the way uh, this was uh, this was transposed was certainly helpful to have each region following its, its, its own rules. So I, I concur with you there. So you mentioned energy um, when you were talking a little bit. So so how have the price caps gone so far from the German perspective? And, and I guess more from the EU perspective, but is there anything unique about how they've gone from the German perspective? Um, I think uh, not really. Um, I. I remember, I think your last uh, podcast was also on the price caps, right? It was. And so I talked with Sue Millar a little bit about the price caps and the difference between the UK and the US in terms of enforcement and some of the potential legal challenges. Yeah. And I think our verdict was that so far, we're really not hearing nearly as much as we expected to hear um, on either side of the Atlantic um, with respect to the price, price caps. Um, Perhaps because it's just too soon, and and that might be the case with Germany as well. But it, but it, from from the UK perspective, I actually expected to hear more, mm-hmm. mostly because the, the insurance is such a key to the price caps, and the 
UK is such a leader in the insurance industry. And so, I mean, are any of the industries that are, you know, the maritime services that are affected by the price cap, are those traditional German industries? And do you have clients or uh, companies that are particularly worried about them? Well, I think you have, uh, an, so, with, uh, so you have a number of uh, maritime uh, companies here in Germany, in particular in Hamburg. Um, and also insurance and, you know, in particular reinsurance companies. Yep. Um, and, and I think two large reinsurance companies that are also active in that sector. Um, so we haven't seen that many cases here. We had a number of cases with regard to, to the import of oil, in particular with regard to, to, to spot purchases um, and, and ways in which you could assess whether the oil was of Russian origin or not, right? And, and, and all of a sudden you had a, a proposal from someone in Bulgaria offering very good oil. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a number of, of uh, cases in this area, but with regard to the price cap, uh, uh, we haven't seen it. And I think, I mean, the rules seem to be pretty straightforward. Yep. Um, but then I don't know. I mean, if you look at that, the, the, the price cap is oriented to deal with transactions between Russia and third states. You know, that happens all far away on the oceans. Um, so I think uh, I, I, I have the fear that there might be a lot of circumvention going on there. I mean, yeah, uh, I think that that's where it's going to be hard to police because, you know, I think they, they set out this, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three, but tier, the tier two and tier three are the, you know, insurance companies, reinsurance companies, um, you know, the, the companies that are not on the ground actually buying the oil. So they're not going to be able to tell you what price it is. And so their information is only going to be good. It's what's provided kind of on the first exit from Russia. And that, uh, I, I suspect that, um, you're going to have to really look closely at documents and try and figure out whether they're genuine. But still, how would you know? I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. And I, if you look at, you know, our work as a lawyer, so I think first uh, starting in February, it was, you know, advising on the on the new rules, right? So trying to understand and uh, in calls with with companies uh, which didn't understand the rules and. Uh, understandably, because sometimes <laughs> they're simply not understandable, right? right? <laughs> and then, um, but what started in um, in the summer and autumn, definitely of last year, were first cases where there were some violations. Um, so I think most of them, you know, unintentional uh, cases of violations. So we found a number of self-disclosures. Um, um, and then we've seen a number of uh, cases already in which authorities are, um, uh, you know, looking into certain transactions, uh, assessing whether they have been, whether they, uh, you know, are prohibited uh, under the, the sanctions rules. And we've seen a number of cases in which the press reported about uh, companies um, uh, breaching sanctions, allegedly breaching sanctions. So, and I think, this latter part, so self-disclosures and investigation dawn rates, that's the part where we see more and more activity now. Yep. Um, so I could imagine that uh, these um, 
uh, tier two and three operators will be targeted, you know, in two years' time. Right. There is It'll an take a while. export trade audit, um, and all of a sudden you will have an auditor. And, you know, it's so much easier to, after two years' time, say, oh, you should have known that this was Russian oil, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. <it's>, yeah. <laughs> People are very smart. <laughs> right. With hindsight, it's 2020. Exactly. exactly. So, and I think then we will have the discussions, you know, was it really a, uh, was the, the $60, uh, the contract price, or wasn't it a $120 price and because the surcharge wasn't new or whatever, right? I think right. You know, all these right. additions and subtractions that you can have from the price, it will certainly play a role way down the road. Understood. So my sense from the outside is that, um, you know, I think you mentioned some some enforcement actions already. Is that the German enforcement agencies have been pretty aggressive? I mean, is that your sense too, or is this just kind of spotlighting a couple of high profile incidents? No, I think, um, and that goes back to what you said at the very beginning that uh, the the um, the way in which German authorities um, and German business are dealing with this matter is completely different than what it used to be um, in the past, dealing with other trade sanctions. I think um, uh, most companies always said, okay, we need to, to abide by these rules, but they, they were really perceived to be, a, a, you know, oh my God, do I really need to abide by these rules, right? I mean, they preclude me from doing nice business. But now you have a, a, a urgent sense to abide by the rules. Um, so, uh, and you see that at, at company level, but also at authority level, and you have a number of very um, uh, serious um, public prosecutors uh, that are cracking down, that are you know looking into every ways of um, looking into uh, uh, certain transactions. We've seen a number of uh, whistleblower cases uh, in which um, uh, employees or former employees of the company uh, told went to the prosecutor and said. Um, my former employer is selling stuff to Russia and he, he shouldn't be doing. Um, we, we also had such a case uh, which where the whistleblower turned out to be, you know, not saying the truth, right? <laughs> because at the end of the day... <laughs> that will happen sometimes. That will happen, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and it happened in that case already <laughs> where we had a... Uh, really, it was a, you know, it was a fake news, right? I mean, right, exactly. the company was, was all right. They had a, a nice compliance system, stopped selling to Russia. But uh, it, I think it's easy now to make to make news and to, to end up uh, in the news. And what you certainly don't want as a company is to be involved with Russia's sanctions violations and be named in the press, right? Right. So that's right. always something that, uh, in addition to, to our legal advice, what, what companies will always look for is to, to consider what the, the implications will be uh, on the media side. Yeah, I mean, it really is an area, and this is true from the U.S. side as well, where companies are not only concerned about kind of staying on the right side of sanctions, but being perceived to be on the right side of these sanctions, um, yeah. which, you know, obviously companies would rather have good publicity rather than bad publicity. But I, I think I've written more memos on the reputational consequences of doing yeah. something than I probably in the last year than I probably had in the ten years before that. That's right, and I think that's, you know, I think 
understanding the sanctions regulations is already hard sometimes, right? I yeah. mean, even uh, if you have dealt with sanctions rules before, um, but you know, they're always a novel concept. And I think we have a number of novel issues also in these sanctions, but it's still, they're technically quite heavy. And then you have all the classification issues. So does the product really fall under Annex 7 or 8 or 18 or whatever? Um, but then you have this reputational issue where it's really difficult to predict, you know, is it really going to be an issue if I exported, you know, I don't know, butter to Russia and all of a sudden <laughs> there is an, a journalist which says that exporting butter to Russia is the worst thing you can do in your life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can, you can pretty much guarantee it. Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of, um, in terms of, keeping up with the law, which I think, you know, that is kind of a consequence of all these changes, but also kind of more, a more active enforcement authority. I mean, so, so my understanding is that prior to the last year that the German authorities did not put out a lot of guidance. Um, but in the last year, a lot of guidance has come out. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how that process has worked? Because I think we've gotten pretty used to the guidance coming out on, on, you know, over in the U.S. with OFAC. OFAC has gotten better over time in figuring out which questions really are frequently asked and, and providing answers to them if it, if it can. Um, how is that going from the, you know, perspective of the, you know, BAFA and, and BAFIN? I think it's uh, getting better. Uh, the uh, So we have now FAQs from both from the European Commission uh, and from and from the German Ministry for Economic Affairs, and you have some leaflets from from BAFA. So I think in that re regard, um, I think there is a a constant uh, revision also of the positions taken. Um, so for example, with regard to you know the luxury goods, we're speaking about um, you know how do you uh, calculate the, the value of these goods, right? Um, and there was some discrepancy, and I think now they uh, they solved that and said basically you have to look into the export documents. So which was, I, I think it was a good <laughs> result, but right. it took some time for it to 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 dribble down in the into the uh, FAQs. So I think that's getting better. What is somehow difficult here is approaching. Uh, authorities on individual cases and I think this was always a very was very uh, not a USP was certainly a, a good point of uh, exporting from Germany because you know the German authorities were always harsh uh, uh, on their interpretation of the law uh, so it wasn't like you could negotiate a lot with them about saying okay we export A and you, you prohibit B right so this was not, never their approach <laughs> But you could always um, ask them for their opinion and they would provide you the answer. Uh, and that's still true. Um, uh, however, um, I think because in some areas the legislation is so unclear um, because, you know, I think the, sometimes the, uh, the packages, they were adopted within days, right? So I think it, it yeah. really makes it difficult for them as well to understand uh, what's written in there, and you have a lot of pressure, um, you know, political pressure to crack down on violators, but then you ha also have a, a naturally a pressure 
uh, from the, the business, right? Because they they want to to abide by the rules, but they also want to continue doing legal businesses. Um, and you have a situation in which you now have thousands of applications per week, where you used to have I don't know ten or twenty, right? Yeah. So I think this mixture really made it difficult for the authorities to be able to really re respond precisely on what uh, um, on the questions uh, we put to them. And what we have seen, unfortunately, more than once is an answer saying, oh, we understand your position. And I think it's, it's fair to say that your arguments are OK. However, it remains a bit unclear. And so we recommend you not to do <laughs> And that's really the worst that can happen, right? Because uh, I knew it was unclear when I asked. Exactly, right? Your job was to tell me the answer. Exactly. And I think because then it re it's really impossible for the company to continue doing the business. So I think right. it's more developing into an area in which more and more often we do not reach out to authorities. Rather, we say, okay, that's our understanding, you know, that's the risk analysis. Um, but, you know, in our opinion, you're good to go, right? And then the, right. the companies have a uh, hopefully solid legal foundation right. on with the business. Uh, and in case they're audited in two years' time, they can always blame me then, right? Uh, right. That's our I, job, right? Exactly. That's my job. And so I hope that we'll go back to, uh, you know, being uh, able to, discuss more open uh, and more often with authorities as it used to be before the Russian invasion. Yeah, that is unfortunate. I mean, but that is, so So we actually have kind of both versions of that over here. So on the one hand, um, the Commerce Department, you know, which deals with the, with the items that are subject to U.S. export controls here, is actually pretty good about talking to you and, give, and helping you resolve things in a pretty quick way. OFAC is not nearly as good. And in fact, it has been suggested that OFAC has had a policy of strategic ambiguity, meaning they're, they're ambiguous and they kind of don't want you to know the answer because their hope is that if you can't figure out the answer, you won't do the transaction. And so they'll stop even more transactions than they've, than they've prohibited if they keep things ambiguous. Whereas if they provide clarity, then people will get right up to the line. And, and I, I think that that you know, that sounds like where Germany's at, but I think what you're talking about after that is what's happened here as well, where essentially, because you know you'll never get an answer out of OFAC, it's kind of left to the sanctions bar to figure this out without any help from the regulators, which is a lot harder, but essentially kind of puts us at, like, we have to call it and then say, you know, we could be wrong, but but we this is our best this yeah. is our best estimate of what is allowed and what's not. And if you, you know, follow our advice, there's still some risk. But um, here's where we, why we think the risk is X, or why, why we think the risk is, you know, higher than X. Um, but it, it becomes a risk analysis because essentially you wind up telling them, here's what I think the law is, but there's no guarantees because we can't get any clarity from OFAC. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's where we're heading, and I would say that. I wouldn't say that the reason for their ambigu ambiguity is because, you know, that's a purposeful 
And I guess OFAC would never admit. <laughs> of the... No, OFAC does not admit to strategic exactly. ambiguity. <laughs> but I think, uh, I guess it's more a question of um, just being overwhelmed. And in addition to that, uh, BAFA is not only competent of dealing with export sanctions, but also they are the authority, um, you know, dealing with um, state aids in the area of electricity, of gas. So they had to deal with all these um, state aid schemes during the February, March type. So they really had a lot of work in their agenda. Um, and then a number of agents that were dealing with export control matters, they were dragged on to other departments dealing with, uh, with the state aid issues. Because, and there, there was, certainly was a, uh, I presume there was a political decision to say, okay, we need to save, you know, the German economy from collapsing because the energy prices are so high. So we need to really get the money to the companies as quickly as possible. Um, and this was perceived to be less of an issue of dealing with complicated export control matters because of companies wanted to export to Russia. So I think on the... So the ambiguity was more of a, you had less people to deal with more complex questions. Yep. You had more people dealing with just, you know, getting the money. <laughs> right, the getting money moving. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. So I, my understanding is in the past year, the Germany has also passed two new sanctions laws. I mean, pretty um, groundbreaking sanctions laws and, and, and different, at least as I understand, than anything that's really come before. Can you talk about, you know, both of those quickly and kind of how that's affected German sanctions law and practice? Yeah, I think the, um, I think we're, we, we're not seeing, or I think we're not seeing the results yet of these new sanctions enforcement acts. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the rules that are being set now will really change the way in which sanctions are imposed. But perhaps if I can start at the EU level. Sure. So, uh, you always have, you know, I think the material prohibitions are set by the EU uh, legislator, which says, okay, it's prohibited to sell, uh, uh, you know, arms to Russia. Uh, and then it's, um, and there is always a clause in the regulation saying member states must provide for penalties for cases of uh, breaches. And that's in, I guess, all uh, sanctions regulations. And, and then in each individual uh, member state, you need to have a legislation saying it's prohibited to sell arms either to Russia or simply uh, referring to the, uh, to the regulation at the EU level. And Germany has been doing that. Um, and uh, in all other, or most other member states have been doing that throughout the history. So you will have um, uh, prohibitions uh, being sanctioned at member state level throughout the EU. The way they uh, deal with these um, uh, enforcement cases is different. So in some countries it's a criminal offense, in others it's an administrative offense. In other countries you have a mixture, depending on whether it was intentional or negligent. So I think there you have a, a different setup. Um, and then you have two developments. So at EU level, the EU is trying to, you know, to, 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 to strengthen the way that 
member states need to deal with the sanctions. So they're saying you need to provide for stronger rules, for example, and this is something that we will, will probably lead to changes in, the, in German legislation. You also need to provide for criminal offenses, I guess, uh, for cases of um, non-intentional behavior. So if someone acted negligently, um, this may lead to a criminal offense throughout the EU. So that's not uh, the, this uh, regulation still being discussed, but it, it could have major impact throughout the EU. So that's a discussion at EU level. And then in Germany, we have, uh, we've had uh, an understanding that we had all these beautiful uh, rules at EU level, but the way they were being um, imposed in Germany was perceived to be weak. Uh, for example, it was unclear, you know, what prosecutor is competent to deal with a big boat of, uh, that is allegedly owned by one of the Russian guys, the rich guys. Uh, and, you know, you didn't, you didn't know, was it his boat? You know, is it the, the prosecutor A or B who's competent? Uh, is it, you know, the Ministry of Finance or the Ministry of Economic Affairs? So there was a, because, because it, there isn't such a huge history, such as in the U.S., of going after sanctions violations, there wasn't a, big of, a lot of practice to build on. Yeah. So, and there, what started was to have a, a task force at being built up in the Ministry for Economic Affairs that is really bundling the knowledge and competencies from other ministries and from within the Ministry for Economic Affairs and thinking about issues such as the Sanctions Enforcement Act. So I think, and, and this was really, I think, perhaps even more important than to have, you know, this new legislation is to have the understanding at the federal level, we need to have a, you know, think tank at federal level dealing with information, uh, dealing with, you know, sanctions um, enforcement matters. So I think this, this was really a major change because before that it was like okay it's for each prosecutor dealing with that but to have you know central uh, body dealing with that i think this was really a key and what we have in these individual acts i think the, the first one was more of an organizational one dealing with who's competent for what so i think an important inner governmental issue uh, and the second will really be you know putting this information uh, into the right place. So there is a central office for sanctions enforcement, uh, which will be created. Um, and the idea is here to, to channel information on sanctions enforcement and AML uh, into the central office. Uh, this office's job will be to, to set up a, a central register where you will have a number of information in particular you know, is asset A owned or owned by a, a, a sanctioned individual? And that's an information that nowadays isn't available, right? right. And, and, and then you will have, once you have the information on who is sanctioned, what property is blocked. So I think this could really be a, a game changer. Now, what is not dealt with in this regulation is what happens with these frozen assets. Um, and um, uh, the uh, you know as everywhere, uh, there is also a discussion here uh, about you know 
expropriating uh, these assets uh, and using them to rebuild uh, Ukraine. Um, I guess uh, constitutionally this will be a, a major uh, challenge um, because so far also in Germany, but I think across the EU, the idea is to that asset freezes are a temporary activity uh, and the, the assets need to be you know, given back. Uh, once right, it's to change behavior and when behavior changes, you give the assets back has been the philosophy over here as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that has changed in connection with this this war where, you know, our Congress passed a law in December that allowed the Justice Department to transfer forfeited assets, certain forfeited assets to the, the proceeds to Ukraine. And and that is new because they the forfeited assets either had to go to the treasury or there were certain victims groups that they could go to, but they couldn't be transferred to another country. And so that's changed. What hasn't changed though, at least from this from the state side, is that OFAC can freeze assets, but OFAC doesn't forfeit assets. DOJ forfeits assets and it's there's actually a you know judicial process that you have to go through and, and they have to prove certain things in a in a civil case or potentially a criminal case, but there's actually a, a court process. I mean, is there something similar in, in Germany or is that part of what the new sanctions laws have no, put in that's, place? That's presumably not exactly the same, but you know, it's procedurally a nightmare. <laughs> but, yes, here too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but you can only forfeit uh, property if there is a judicial decision backing that. So I think you, you can, so the prosecutor can, for example, uh, ask for a uh, real estate property just to be frozen, right? right. So there, there is in, uh, in the register, you will have a, a stamp saying frozen by the prosecutor. But if he wants to make use of that, so to forfeit it, to sell it to third parties, uh, then he needs to go to the court. And the court will say, yes, it's a criminal activity. Uh, and that's why you state are allowed to sell it. Uh, and I guess this could be a major challenge uh, in uh, with regard to, to Russia sanctions, because while I think it's clear for some of the uh, um, uh, companies or persons listed there that they're probably not extremely nice persons, uh, but you know the question is, have they really been individually involved? in uh, criminal activities, right? Right, right. And that's and that's going to be the issue here in the States too. I mean, at least our media in the States talks about these forfeiture issues and talks about the Klepto Capture Task Force as though they're just going to magically take these assets, sell them and hand them to Ukraine. It's just a matter of can we get our hands on them. But there's actually, I mean, there's a real process here and there, there are things you have to prove that are very different than what gets people sanctioned. Yeah. And so I'm curious to see how that plays out. We've only had one um, forfeiture case here so far and it wasn't contested. But some of these cases I suspect will be contested. And if they are contested, you know, it's not just a, it's not just like magic. It's not just, yeah. you know, the prosecutor says this is a Russian oligarch's property. So therefore we sell it and we send it to Ukraine. It, the standards are a little different. Yeah. And I think you have the, the constitutional law issues, which certainly are, um, you know, legally extremely interesting, uh, you know, or what can say challenging, right? I mean, the law develops uh, also uh, with these disputes, right? So the Nuremberg yep. trials also led to a development of the law, which was different, right? And I think you, right. you always have these conflicts which can lead to a change in, uh, of legislation or of the law. 
think if you look at it from a policy perspective, you know, I think you can all, always also make an argument to say, okay, if we really, you know, take their money, right, to, to make it bluntly, uh, are we really making sure that in the next case, uh, we can use sanctions in the same way, right? Because we want people to go back to being civilized persons again, right? To coming yes. back to being businesses would want to trade worldwide. And if we take away the money, then it's clear that a sanction is a punishment. Well, and, and uh, yeah, it's it's totally a punishment. And it's not even clear with respect to, you know, what, what the media would call Russian oligarchs, what the point of the punishment is. I, I understand the sanctions rationale for this. The sanctions rationale is we want to put pressure on Putin to change his policy and end the war in Ukraine. And the the most wealthy Russian executives are people who will likely have influence and power over Putin because they control significant portions of the Russian economy. And so if we make life difficult for them, maybe they'll go back and say to Putin, stop, right? That's the theory. And so, but, but if you essentially take, you don't just make like difficult, you, you, you essentially take away any incentive they have to go back to Putin because the, the property's gone. It's actually been sold and, and sent over to Ukraine. You don't have those sorts of incentives because at that point, you just basically turn everyone in the Russian elite into an automatic enemy of the West because they basically said, well, they're, they're, they're on the, there's no point in me actually trying to change policy because I'm going to lose what, what's out there regardless of what I do. So you don't change behavior at all. You essentially just impose a penalty. And it's not clear to me what the point of that penalty is, because at least some of the wealth that's obtained in Russia was obtained through lawful businesses. And so, and I don't think there's much of an effort to figure out, you know, who, who, who obtained their wealth in ways that we would, you know, appreciate from the Western side, you know, who is just as morally righteous a billionaire as some of the U.S. billionaires. There's not any real effort to do that. It's just basically if you have X amount of money in Russia, you're viewed as a Russian oligarch. And while, you know, I can understand that from a putting pressure on Putin standpoint, this notion that you would um, penalize everyone with such a broad brush. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people you could make the case for penalizing and who've engaged in potentially criminal activity, but they're, that's, that's, not, that's not what anybody's looking for. They're just kind of painting with such a broad brush that it is hard to understand from a culpability standpoint why you'd impose penalties automatically without more of a finding than just this person is Russian and they have a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, you know, the, the issue is it sounds so fair, right, to take the money of these extremely rich people that right. are so closely tied to such a bad government, right, which is invading a foreign country. Yep. Um, and I think just the problem with this fairness feeling, at the end of the day, uh, whoever the person is, he will have the right to challenge that at the constitutional court in the U.S., in Germany, in Paris, and at these constitutional court level, the decision will be taken whether there was sufficient criminal activities to warrant such a forfeiture. Right. And I think that's really also, if you look at the uh, at the Ukrainian side, I think it's uh, also difficult uh, then imagine if, you know, if the West starts to say, okay, we will give you all this money that we, uh, that we seize from Russia, and then at the end of the day, it all falls apart because the the, the legal challenges all of a sudden are successful. Well, 
then I think that won't be helpful for, for Ukraine as well, right? So I think it's right. I think we need to have this um, debate whether that's possible or not for promising any huge sums uh, to Ukraine, right? Exactly. A more realistic debate about it. And, and because I think it's very satisfying to tell voters, well, we're going to support Ukraine and you won't have to pay for it. We're going to make the Russians pay for it. Um, and, and, and I understand that sentiment. And again, I mean, what I was saying before about Russian businessmen, I'm not trying to come out and say, you know, uh, it wasn't pro-oligarch. I was just pro-due process at this point. It was it was more of a, if you're going to punish people, you really ought to prove things about those people that go beyond um, just their, their wealth and their nationality. But but I think when it, when it comes to paying for what's going on in Ukraine, it, it certainly seems like the an ideal solution to have Russia pay for it, but actually making that happen um, may not be a very realistic promise um, either over there or over here. I mean, that's it, the, the the overall public international law approach, right? That if you are an aggressor, um, then you need to pay for what you've uh, done wrong. Yeah. Right? The problem is, at the end of the day, um, even though uh, it's certainly a, you know, a, at least in a political debate, you're not allowed of saying uh, a lot to say that we will have a negotiated solution at some point in time. Uh, but you know, if you look at all the recent wars, have always been uh, solved, uh, you know, at the negotiation table. Uh, so I, I hope that someday this will also be possible for this horrible war, um, yes. and then you will have a settlement, I guess, also financially on what damages are paid. Um, right. And and to be clear, I mean, Russia should pay, but actually figuring out how to make that happen is very yeah. difficult, I think. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, this has been incredibly interesting, Roland. Um, I'm going to give you a, a shot at any last words, but I think it's been a pretty monumental year for, for German sanctions, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to explain it. Yeah. No, thank you. It's been uh, very nice uh, talking to you. And, you know, let's see how this year goes. We hope it will and without sanctions, because this would mean that the war is over, right? 100% agree. Yeah. Stay sanctions-free, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Produced by HeartCast Media.